Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. And I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hello. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal and Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people past, present and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how are you? How's it going? Have you been up to... Uh, I'm fine. Things are going well. We went away on a little holiday, so I feel like we got to escape things for a little bit, but Mm. not really because I couldn't help but, you know, check the COVID news. I didn't. Every single day. Really? Did you actually check it every day? Yeah. I didn't check the COVID numbers once when we were away. Lucky. I just, I was really relishing and being out of the news cycle, to be honest. I was, it was nice to like not have any fucking clue about what was going on. And then every now and then I would spy on the pedestrian Instagram because I'm a workaholic and see stuff and be like, oh my God, I didn't know that happened. Interesting. It was a good feeling to like not know what was happening. But anyway, I, I hijacked your, <laughs> your what I've been up to section. So I'm just going to... Well, just, it's the same thing. I'm just going to keep going. Yes, yeah, so we went up to a friend's farm for a week, which was, I guess, interesting. Um, a little farm girl? Yeah, apparently. I feel like that entire trip was just exposure therapy for my arachnophobia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I went back to work today and I was telling my co-workers about a few of the spider incidents I had to deal with and... Josie was like crying. <laughs> there was like a tear. And I was like, I know, is this not traumatic? But I'll save those details for another day because I'm sure you guys aren't here. The bugs weren't as bad as I was expecting. That's true. I don't think I ever put on any error guard and I was expecting to be yeah. covered in that the whole trip. Yeah, I am definitely a city girl. Even though mm. there were far less bugs than we thought there would be, there were still too many for me. But that's just life. But yeah, we went away, which was nice. I guess we don't have like a huge section to like say what we did because we were both just gone together. Like I rode a buggy and I shot a bow and arrow, which yeah. is kind of cool. I drove, which for those of you who don't know, I don't have my license. So I like, I have my L's, but I've had them for like seven years, probably more than that now, actually. So I actually drove for once, which is kind of cool. But yeah, it's, just, it's been like, it was just a nice, like kind of, let's just get away from our lives for a little bit. And yeah, have a last final spontaneous holiday. So that was nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shall we get into some follow-up? Yes, let's do that. Look, to be fair, there's like not a huge amount of follow-up, which is, I guess, good because we just like fucked off to middle of nowhere. So. <laughs> but we do have COVID follow-up. And that follow-up is that the situation is still fucked. That's my update. That's it? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it kind of is. I was talking to someone today and case numbers are down to like the 20,000s pretty steadily in South Wales. I think it's been 20,000 for like a few days now. And they're like, you know, some experts and like, well, not so much experts, but politicians have been saying things like, oh, you know, we've, we've surpassed the peak. And I'm just like, potentially, potentially. But I'm skeptical because testing has never been so inaccessible. We talked about that last episode, but there's like almost no PCR testing clinics open near me. Like it's a struggle to find one. Nobody has any rapid tests. No one can find any. The free rapid tests were meant to go into effect today. But like all these pharmacies are like, yeah, we have no stock. So, sorry, can't give you rapid tests because we literally don't have any and the government didn't supply us with any, which we detailed in our last episode that they were going to just tell the pharmacies to give away what they had 
and then the government will reimburse them. But obviously they sold everything they have, especially when they found out it was going to become free. I'm sure they all tried to sell what they had before that happened. So like there's no rapid test. There's no PCR testing. It's just a giant fucking shit show, which we knew. But I guess my update is things are still fucked and don't feel like they're not fucked because no one's reporting them anymore. It's still fucked. My other and final piece of follow-up that I wanted to bring up, which I guess like isn't follow-up, it's more like a, hey, flagging this. It's sort of a follow-up on the episode we did a year ago. A year ago. Well, my follow-up that isn't follow-up is that it's obviously, quote-unquote, Australia Day. Uh, When this episode goes live, actually, we're recording on the Monday. When this episode goes live on Wednesday, it will be the 26th of January, which is Invasion Day. So saying go to the protest won't really be that helpful because people... Well, unless you guys listen to this podcast at like eight in the morning. Mm. But what I did want to flag is that there are still Invasion Day protests on. I do understand, obviously, people are afraid of COVID and I think that's a pretty fair reason to not want to go to a protest. But we'll be going to the Sydney one. Maybe we'll see a bunch of you there like we did last year. I think we saw quite a few of you last year, which was really nice. I am boosted up, so I'm not as anxious as I normally am. I don't think I had my booster shot last time we recorded, so I'm feeling ready to re-enter. I have not had my booster yet, so stay away from me. Yeah, Mitch can stand at like a two-meter distance and you can talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> but um, look, for those of you who do want to go, I'll put a link in our source list. SBS has a roundup of all the protests like per city, where they're going to be, and what like the COVID safety measures are, which I found quite helpful. So for those of you who don't know where your local Invasion Day protest is, and th- but you want to attend, like I'll pop the link in there and you can figure that out. But yeah, look, it's one of those things where normally I'm like, you better all be there. But I get it. Like, I get it right now. Cases are fucked. It's 20,000 cases a day. It's fair to want to prioritize your health. At least personally, I think, you know, like that's understandable. But for those of you who are going to go, hopefully I'll see a bunch of you there. But yeah, we just wanted to flag that this episode is going to come out on Invasion Day. And that obviously we're going to clarify our stance. Fuck Australia Day. I don't even like just a quick side. Like I keep... (laughs) seeing polls coming up right now that are like do you want the date to change yes or no and i'm like i don't want the date at all how are we still at this stage of the discussion like how are we still talking about the correct day to celebrate australia day why aren't we just abolishing australia day as a concept in general like no other country celebrates their invasion this is just fucked this is ridiculous um but you guys know our stance on australia day so i don't need to talk about it too much we've done episodes on it we considered like doing Maybe another episode, but honestly, you guys know what we have to say. We have nothing new to add. Yeah, exactly. Shit's still fucked. Mm-hmm. Like, genocide is ongoing. We have an episode on that, which, you know what? Maybe I'll link that in the little source list as well, our previous episode. But, like, genocide is ongoing. It never stopped. We're on stolen land, and it's our responsibility as settlers to show solidarity and support for First Nations people. And we've decided to do that by going to the protest. So, yeah, see you there. Anyway, let's get into today's episode. It's going to be a different one today, which is fun. I'm excited. This is an episode that Mitch kind of is leading. I guess he's hosting today. I guess I introduced myself as the host, but really you're the host today. Don't worry. It's not as much pressure as it sounds. Like you'll be fine. Yeah. Okay. Well, now you're entering, you know, Mitch's little corner. I'll just give a little preface to explain. Like Mitch and I had a really interesting conversation about something we watched the other day. And he was just like, oh my God, like this is fascinating. And I was like, we should do an episode on it. And he was like, yes. And then he just kind of like did all this work. And I was like, you should do an episode on it. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about tiny houses. And while that may seem surprising at first, 
the more you look into tiny houses and the politics and the ideology that surrounds them, the more it surprisingly begins to uncover deep-rooted failures of capitalism. What a surprise. Everything comes back to capitalism, even tiny houses. Yeah, as we'll see. Well, let's get into it. No, 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 no. <laughs> let's get into it. <laughs> so, in the past two weeks, I've just become completely obsessed and addicted with tiny houses, anything tiny houses, watching YouTube videos, searching down any reality TV show I can find. It's just been something that I can't stop thinking about. So, when I mention tiny houses, what comes to mind for you? So, I have briefly watched like one episode of Tiny House Nation. So, I think of that is the first thing I think of. And also, I remember like a year or two ago, this is like back when I was on Facebook all the time. I used to always get like tiny house, like Facebook posts on my feed. There's like pictures of like uh, like architecture pages and stuff sharing like clever design, like really small house, but like so many nooks and crannies and things that you can pull out and like that kind of stuff. So I think of like a cute, tiny, movable, eco-friendly, mm. like sustainable kind okay. of like that ideas around a house and like really clever ikea type design with like hidden storage and mm. like that kind of stuff that's, okay, that's yes. what i think of when i think no, of tiny I, house. exactly what do you think of when you think tiny houses it's a movement that has sort of became popular in like the the us and like europe but there is an emerging tiny house movement and that's really what it's called it's a movement people proclaim yeah, totally. it to be a complete movement and it is emerging in australia and there's so many sort of ideologies and different things wound up with it and i think like you said sustainability, eco-friendly. Those are kind of big ones. They're they're big ones. The other side is stuff like uh, financial independence. Also just about like minimalism, you Mm -hmm, know. mm -hmm. And what's interesting is how all of these different competing views and and wants in tiny houses really run parallel. But then maybe as we'll see, potentially contradict each other. There's lots of different things that we mean when we talk about tiny houses. Like you have the houses, which are little cabins built somewhere that are standalone. You have tiny apartments, which really, when we're talking about tiny spaces, we're thinking of dwellings, which are under, you know, 40 square meters. I honestly wouldn't have even thought of an apartment. My, My thought is like those like tiny ones on like either standalone in the middle of nowhere or like on wheels. On wheels. Yes. That's also, I think they're, the acronym is T-H-O-W. Those, I presume, tiny house on wheels. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. But yeah, so, that makes sense. You know, we're, we're really entering a new world here, all this, all this tiny house lingo. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we could talk forever about the tiny house movement, how it's linked with both countercultural like elements, like getting away, getting off the grid, moving away mm. from the city, becoming self-sustainable, yeah. as well as Similar more just- Exactly. And as well as just more like practical things about- I'm sort of poor, I want somewhere to live and I have to pay a mortgage off for 30 years. Yeah, like I can't afford a big house. Exactly. So that's all really part of tiny houses. But what I want to get into sort of specifically today and what's been my addiction is tiny house media, TV shows, videos, content, all about tiny houses. And there's two that I really want to focus on today. And they're both different mediums and I think they both show different sides of tiny houses. I want to talk about, firstly... Tiny House Nation, which is what you've seen a few episodes of. Literally one episode of. One episode <laughs> of, which is a Netflix show where they build a tiny house for people often facing 
personal issues in their life. It's like it's like when there's renovations in Better Homes and Gardens. Where like they'll pick a needy person that's been like nominated or whatever, and then they'll reno the room, but they like build you a tiny house. Exactly. It's, it's a reno show, essentially. It's like a, it's supposed to be like a wholesome reno show. Yeah, and they, they typically build like a tiny house on wheels. So that's a very specific type of And it's like house. customized and yeah. But then the one which I'm obsessed with is a YouTube channel actually based in Australia called Never Too Small, where instead of these tiny houses on wheels, they're almost exclusively tiny apartments. And they range from, you know, like 50 square meters to 20 square meters. But what I'm obsessed with are the ones between 20 and 30 square meters because that just seems like an impossibly small space. And I just love seeing how they can fit all these things in. And I love imagining living in those places, which is sort of weird because why would I want to live in a place that's so small? And a big difference between the two shows, which we'll get to soon, is that Tiny House Nation being a Netflix reality show is like 40 minutes long, 44 minutes. It's like a, you know, it's a real long, hour-long TV show. Whereas these never too small videos, which I'm obsessed with and probably I'm obsessed with them because of this, is that they're so short. They're like five minutes, seven minutes. There's a little bite-sized nibbles <laughs> of minimalism. Still a little nibble, <laughs> a little, nibble. <laughs> a little taste. <laughs> yeah. But um, what I really want to get into is what do tiny houses or specifically what do tiny house television, what do tiny house shows say about the world? What do they say about living what do they say about housing what's the discourse what's the discourse what what was the media and why say? is there discourse and why, why there are discourse? we doing a podcast episode on tiny houses which seems kind of random but turns out tiny houses have big discourse i've been waiting all episode to say that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> have that one in my pocket very clever <laughs> so interestingly depending on the show which we'll be talking about in this youtube channel and this Netflix show, there are other shows, but I think this really exemplifies the two sort of perspectives, is that depending on the medium, the medium has a different message. The medium has something different to say about tiny houses and living. So firstly, the most sort of conventional format is that of Tiny House Nation, which, like I said, is a Netflix show. It's 40 minutes. It typically finds families in need, families facing some unfortunate circumstances, families that want to downsize, typically not just for the passion of it, but because something in their life requires them to downsize. And then the show over the 40 minutes shows them living in their community, gets a feel for what their needs are, like what they actually have to get out of this apartment, what they need to do, or for this this house on wheels. And then slowly they begin to modify the house, construct it, put it together. Halfway through, the family will come in, look at the place, give their thoughts. And at the end, we get a really wholesome- a reveal. Reveal. Everything came together. Oh my God, they're so happy now. This is fantastic. Yeah, they're crying with joy. This is such a kindness. You know, it's quite sweet. And I just want to play a bit of the intro uh, for the show. Just a little sound clip. We don't really oh. do that too often. Yeah, I know. Yeah. The, the production value Pull is that so all the stops this episode. <laughs> I just want to play a bit of it because I think it sort of shows what this show is actually trying to say about why people would be doing this. What virtues does it exemplify about tiny houses? So let's just pull that up. I'm John Weisbarth, and I'm a huge fan of the tiny house movement that's exploding across the nation. The average American home is 2,300 square feet, but lots of people are deciding that bigger isn't necessarily better, and they're choosing to live in homes that are just one-tenth the average size. Whether they're after financial independence or desire to live with less, inspired homeowners are starting to think outside the blueprints of everyday building. And that's where I come in. 
So, given that intro, what do you think this show has to say about tiny houses? What view on the world and living does this have? Okay, so the opening was really upbeat. The mm. guy speaking sounded super happy and and like a nice dude. And he's like, hell yeah, fuck yeah, tiny houses, <laughs> woo! <laughs> it was, yeah, it was happy. Um, but I also noticed when he was like, you know, why people downsize? He says financial independence or like... You know, oh, what was the other thing he said? Wanting to live with less. That's right. Wanting to live with less. Like thinking outside of the blueprint, which I thought was like interesting. Probably wouldn't have thought about it more if you hadn't like put me to listening to it. Like in mm. this context, where I'm obviously put my critical thinking hat on. Yeah. Interesting because first of all, financial independence obviously has pretty positive implications and also implies like choice and agency. Like, oh, like these people want agency and individualism. Like they are pursuing, like even the word independence, like already has its own uh, implications more so because it's an American show. Yeah. Um, And then with the other one of just like choosing to live with less, that doesn't actually tell you why. (laughs) What does that even mean? I feel like it implies like, yeah, like minimalism and like the idea of like living with less as a new movement, which it is, you know, like minimalism and not even like something as intense as minimalism, but even like the Marie Kondo kind of mindset of like removing things that you don't need, you know, like we don't need to be extravagant. We don't need to be like luxurious. We should just live with what we need. And I feel like that's a pretty common kind of thing lately, especially in the sustainability movement with like zero waste and stuff like that. People want small spaces. I feel like that was the implication, but it was like actually very vague. And I'm like, I'm filling in those dots myself. And I also thought the blueprint thing was funny because it just like implies that people who live in tiny houses are like these independent, creative, like, entrepreneur types even yeah oh i i think you're on the right track and i really agree with you i think this show sort of is really highlighting like what can tiny houses do for you yeah what can yeah what's their benefit firstly they downsizing means you have more disposable income which means you can be more independent and you can do what really matters in life which i think that's interesting what really matters yeah because what is that For me, what really matters is getting a fucking nice house. (laughs) And then secondly, it's about living with less, about how small living shouldn't be a compromise. But in fact, perhaps living with less should be seen as a virtue. Living somewhere small should be seen as almost righteous about Mm. living a life that's more considered and more examined. More thoughtful. Exactly. Which is something that I can really relate with. Because when I see all these houses, there's no way I could live in a small house. It would, you know, and we'll get to that. But I love the idea of just having a small space where everything just fits and you really have to think about what you have and everything's just more mindful. I think the concept's really romantic. It's very romantic. I think it's really like, I can definitely see the pull. So what I think is interesting about the show and I think that shitty royalty-free you know, intro music uh, <laughs> highlights hey, that. I like the happy. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I like reality TV. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, they just searched on YouTube. You know, reality show intro happy. You're such a hater. Yeah, okay. Anyways, small living should be something that is lovely and great. But yeah. what is interesting, and this is what I want to get into in this part, is about how the show contradicts that message, but is almost forced to do so because of the medium. And I think a big part of that is the fact that it's a reality TV show. Now, you and I, a couple of weeks ago, just watched an episode because I was in this 
tiny yeah, living space. Yeah, that's why I've seen the like, first episode. I just want to. I want to watch some tiny house show. Unless he was on Netflix, <laughs> and we watched the show. And do you remember what it's about? Is about you know this uh, college basketball coach and his wife who works from home. And they want to downsize because they want to send their kids to college. And as you know, you know, education is just it's fucked in America and you just need to sell an arm and a leg to yeah. not go into. You will be in amounts. debt for the rest of your life. Yeah. yeah. So they want to do something really nice for their kids because they really love their family. So they continually over the course of their life have just downsized. They yeah, started so- in a big house. Went into a smaller house and now even a smaller house. Yeah, because I think show. they have three kids and I think they've sent the first two to college by previous downsizing and then they're they're their child. They were kind of like, okay, in order to send her to college, our like last child that is going to college, we need to downsize again because we won't be able to afford it otherwise. Exactly. So already we're seeing a bit of a complication that small living isn't something that people necessarily want to do, but it's mm. something that people do when like tragedy strikes yeah well that was my first thought when we were watching it together because i love wholesome reality tv you guys listen to us talk about um fucking blown away in one of our previous episodes like i love and i love house reno shows and i've watched most of them um so i was pretty keen to watch tiny house nation with you i was like yes give me that serotonin and then we're watching it and all i could think was like this is fucking sad yeah. like they're not downsizing because like they love the tiny house lifestyle they're downsizing because they can't afford to remain in their home exactly. and send their daughter to college at the same time which was like actually kind of sad like i felt sad watching it it kind of ruined my night yeah and another episode which is sort of similarly very sad is about you know this married couple who've been living in their dream house for like 15 years have been renting it and then all of a sudden because they don't have control over this space they get essentially evicted or they the, the rent increases or i believe the landlord just wants to sell the place and now they're you they know just get kicked out of they get kicked home. out they've been probably paying off at that point like the whole mortgage they probably paid the mortgage <laughs> paid yeah, 20 the years there and then they're like oh yeah we're gonna sell it now so and then now they have to move to a tiny home so again the actual it's narratives of the show, yeah, are sort of sitting as like a paradox when compared to... Yeah, because none of these people are choosing a tiny home because like just freely. It's not free choice. It's the only option provided to them within their budget. So for those of you who have listened to the podcast in the past, this will sound very familiar. It's exactly what we talked about on Wholesome Dystopia, right? Where these actually sort of sad news stories about the failure of capitalism in particular are repurposed and reimagined as very wholesome stories. You know, the story of a family continually downsizing from a big home to a medium-sized home to something that is a bit larger than a closet is seen as something inspiring and beautiful and fantastic because they're doing it all to send their kids to college. When really the story is how fucked is America? How fucked is American capitalism and education that people need to live in sort of cozy coffins to not start their life with immense debt. So already we're seeing the tiny house ideology, the tiny house discourse, struggling to keep up with these two opposing messages. One that is great, one that is actually something you do because things aren't that great. It's one of those things where like, you don't even need to critically think. Like if you just watch an episode, it's so obvious. Like it's so obvious that it is struggling to keep up with its own ideology. So, my other example, which is actually one I'm really addicted to, Tiny House Nation, that it's all right. You're only talking about that because really I addicted. like it. Exactly. But <laughs> I wanted to the talk thing about it. That if you take anything away from today, and despite what I may say, this is actually a roundabout recommendation. 
that never too small. I love that YouTube channel. Like I said, <laughs> they're based on Australia. They do a little five to seven minute bite-sized videos about yeah if you're tiny listening the creator of this because they could they could know about us yeah maybe they're based what if in they melbourne. find what if they find this podcast episode everyone who listens in melbourne don't send it to them <laughs> <laughs> well they may not like what i'm gonna say at some point yeah we're sorry right. so instead of the frantic energetic style of tiny home nation which really struggles to keep up with its positive messaging but then also the the inevitable conflicts of a reality tv show under capitalism. Under capitalism. Uh, never too small. Instead, ops for something a bit slower, relaxed and zen-like. It's much slower paced. And it doesn't quite show the building process, but it just shows the space as it exists. The space as someone lives in it. It's really interesting that the Netflix show is 40 minutes long and yet super fast paced and chaotic. Mm. And this is seven minutes long maximum. And like, it's really slow. And peaceful. Very interesting contrast there. So, even more than Tiny House Nation, the Netflix show, this never too small YouTube channel focuses on really the virtues of living small. Living small is something that is morally pure in a way. It's something that is righteous. Something Mm. that you do because it's modern and because it's the the right way to live. It's the right thing to do. Because you're taking up less space and you have less waste and- even just being, the, it's it's very monk-like, you know what I mean? It's like meditative. It's yeah. like you're sacrificing the material pleasures of life for something transcendent. Exactly. And I'll just play a couple of the clips right now because at the end of every episode, they have the architect or the owner just talking about why it's important that we build these types of spaces, that we repurpose these really small spaces into something that's more practical. So I'll just play a couple now. Retrofitting um, existing apartments is hugely important for future living. As resources become more and more finite, it's so critical that we start to reuse, adapt, reimagine what our existing building stock is with better amenity and I think a better sense of community. And then there's this one. Cities like Sydney have some amazing old housing stock that's been solely built and isn't going anywhere and repurposing that amazing housing stock to bring it up to the way we want to live our life now or, you know, just giving it a refresh is one of the most sustainable ways we can continue to grow our cities. And this one. Populations are growing. Melbourne's hit 5 million last year, heading for something like 8 million by 2050. Uh, We need to be thinking about Um, how we're going to house people more space efficiently. So like you heard there, topics of sustainability, overpopulation Mm. really continue to rise, which I think is very interesting. I um, The moment population came up, my eyebrows just like rose right Mm. to the fucking hairline on my forehead. I was just like, um, absolutely not. (laughs) No, (laughs) that sounds like eugenics. That sounds like ecofascism, but... Maybe I can talk about it a bit more later. Yeah, no, we'll we'll move into that. But what I find interesting is how these virtues of like modernity and purity and righteousness are shown not just in the houses, but in the actual aesthetics of the video. The zen-like ambient music is almost like ASMR. Yeah, you don't even have to have like watched the episodes. You can just hear that. And I feel like there's already like quite a superior 
vibe. But despite that, this is what I love. The show it only uses a static, unmoving camera. It's very beautiful to look at. Sometimes it looks like a Wes Anderson film because everything is sort of centered and symmetrical. Yeah, like I, I think showing those clips to you guys, I think what we're trying to get across here is that there is an ideology that they're pushing upon the listener about tiny houses that they – there is a, essentially like there is propaganda here. Like there is an idea that this is the good, right thing to do as a person, like for the greater good and also for your personal development. But unlike the other one, unlike the Netflix show, which was more like financial independence, like here are the benefits to you, this – show is more like here is how you are benefiting the world Mm. which i think is like an important point to make from a propaganda perspective because that's going to become really relevant in why we're talking about this today and why we're talking about tiny houses because our interest lies in as you guys all know capitalist propaganda so yeah exactly and that's why this is interesting that's why we want to get into it yeah and because this is a podcast it's hard to sort of translate what the show looks like when you watch it but a lot of these spaces are I mean, I like watching the really small ones. So some of these, the videos that I just played a clip of were like, you know, one's 24 square meter, which is, you know, tiny. The other one's 26 square meter. These really small spaces and you watch them and you think this is sort of very beautiful. This is well designed, but how do I live in this space? Like, are they actually livable? Are they actually livable? Or is this just very aesthetically pleasing? I think I could only fit about 5% of my shit in here. And even then, I'm not even sure I could do that And I much. could never have a friend over. I could never have a friend. Oh, I want to make music or I want to paint. Where would I do that? The bed's in the way. Oh, I, the bed folds up. You know, there's just all these little things mm. where it's fascinating to watch and it's so clean, so minimal. They're so satisfying. They're so satisfying. But you think- How practical are they? How practical? How do people live in these spaces? So yesterday I was showing my mum- you know, one of these YouTube videos, because for years and years, she'd always just talk to me about small houses and talk to me about how she'd want to, you know, one day live in this sort of space or how she would love living in just like a granny flat or a small place, because in a way it would make her live a more mindful, considered life. Everything would always be clean all the time. It's what you tell yourself. But I know if I lived in these spaces, it would be fucking disgusting. Yeah. It'd be a pigsty because there's small space, but lots of mess. (laughs) But she asked the exact same question, I did. How do people live in these spaces? And looking into it, you realize that, like I said, they don't. So as I became addicted to this YouTube channel and was watching all of the smallest houses I could find, I would then try and hunt down some of these spaces just to see, you know, how much these spaces cost, like where I can find them, just because I'm sort of daydreaming about living in a beautiful space one day and and, and considering what my future may look like. Yeah, you're like, could I afford this? Like, is this my budget? So... What I often found, especially with the videos I just showed you, is that these apartments actually don't have anyone living in them. No single person living in them. And they're also not available to lease on stuff like, you know, domain. They're actually are listed as Airbnbs, which I find very interesting, sort of hypocritical and very contradictory. Because well, that angers me a little bit, but yeah, I'll let you say it first. Well... You hold on to your horse. (laughs) (laughs) Back the fuck up, bitch. (laughs) Well, it's just watching this video, you you get the sense that one would really struggle to live there. And it sort of makes sense that the answer is that no one lives there. People do stay there. People stay the night there. People sleep there. But no one person lives there. No one calls it home. The space is only practical 
to pass through. Yeah, it's temporary. It's temporary. It's practical because you're a backpacker or you want to experience what it's like to live in a small home because you think it looks beautiful. Yeah, you rent it out for the novelty. Yeah, or you watch this YouTube video and thought, that seems cool. Maybe I should go suss it out. (laughs) Exactly. So these spaces are just something that you pass through. It's a virtue that you sort of take on for a bit, but then leave behind because really who would live like that is what you tell yourself. And despite what these people say about, you know, the uncertainty of the future, we need to live sustainably. These existing as Airbnbs, these existing as short-term rentals, I think really complicate this message and make it seem quite empty. Well, it's just fucking hypocritical to talk about creating housing and the need for housing and like to justify your, not just justify your tiny house like that, but to push the idea of tiny houses onto people and to moralize tiny houses and imply that like the people who live in tiny houses or make them are actually just selfless beings, like, you know, helping the population be housed. And then to like, to say that and then rent your property out as an Airbnb is fucked because you're not creating housing. You're creating a holiday destination that I'm sure you're overcharging people for and you're actually taking up real estate that could be housing. So that brings us to an interesting discussion, which actually takes us just for a little bit away from tiny houses in particular, because some people may be listening and thinking, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? The fact that it's an Airbnb, you know, it's still people living there. And that sort of gets to the second half or the second answer to the question, how do people live there? First, it was, how do people live there? The answer, they don't. The other question is, how do people live there? Answer, they can't. And this is where we get into the darker side of Airbnb, short-term rental gentrification. So before we get into maybe the more nitty gritty of that, when I say gentrification and specifically Airbnb gentrification, what sort of comes to mind there? How do you think that sort of operates? Okay, I've literally never read anything about this, so I'll start off with that. But just like going off the top of my head, I can definitely imagine, and I've probably seen like on Airbnb, like Airbnb properties in areas that you maybe wouldn't expect an Airbnb to be that like cost a lot of money to stay in because Airbnbs are fucking expensive. And I have been saying this for years. I am an Airbnb hater and I used to be an Airbnb fan. Now I'm a hotel bitch because Airbnbs these days literally cost the same as staying in a hotel, but without the room service. It's some bullshit. Mm. It costs like... 250 a night at the Meriton in Sydney and an Airbnb literally like 30 kilometers away will cost the same. Yeah. And that's without like the room service. It's without all the cleaning services. It's without like check-in. Like what? what's the incentive anyway these days for Airbnb, honestly? Sure. So when we talk about gentrification and when we mean it in a sort of very broad qualitative sense, is when we think about areas which were once affordable undergoing an influx of new buyers as typically middle-class buyers, which makes a once affordable suburb on the outskirts of a city increase in value. And it also implies that this place is being redeveloped to appeal to this influx of the middle-class population. So it's about appealing to this bourgeois middle-class sensibility, which means- White, typically. Almost always gentrification comes with whiteness. And when we talk about gentrification, it's not necessary. And this is maybe more so in America and a bit more complicated here, but it's still the same. When we talk about an affordable living suburb or a place that's affordable to live, we're talking 
black or we're talking people of color generally. Yeah, we're talking about like areas on the outskirts of town with a higher rate of people of color and a lower socioeconomic status, which often come together. Yeah, exactly. You're thinking Western Sydney. When it comes to short-term rental gentrification specifically and what Airbnb has done to the housing market across the world and the way it's sort of made affordable housing unaffordable is there's sort of two ways to think about it. So firstly, if you want to think of, let's say in Sydney, a sort of a shitty studio space that's relatively small located centrally in the city, we can think of it being like, you know, $300 a week, let's say. Yeah. If that same property was instead rented out on Airbnb, you know, for one night, two nights, they can charge like $150 a night, even $100 a night. They can charge $300 Up, up to $300 a night. Because we stayed in a studio-ish place in like Sydney CBD once via Airbnb and it cost me 250 including the service fee, so about 200 without the service fee, for a night. My rent is like just a little more than that, a week. If you're a landlord- why wouldn't you just convert this longer term rental, you know, on the, the typical leasing, you know, housing market? Why wouldn't you just convert it to an Airbnb? Because for the convenience of short term rentals, people will pay a lot more than if they were living there. It just makes complete sense to refuse to give your house to people that actually want to live there and just let different people, you know, yeah, occupy the space that's, every you're chasing night. the profits you're chasing the money and also like airbnbs are way cheaper as an upkeep situation as well because you don't have tenants that constantly need things to be fixed exactly and like the amenities aren't being used as much but you're charging like triple the price per night like it just like from like a capitalist perspective like you're gonna go where the money goes it's exploitative but landlords are exploitative and that's how you make money exactly and you know over the years i think we've seen tastes change in the way people want to experience a holiday they no longer want to live in a hotel but they want to feel like they're part of the community they want it to be authentic they want to be right in the heart of it not removed Like you are in a hotel and you want to stay in a house on that street, which is true because I've done that. So that's one way to think about gentrification. Another and slightly more complex way, which a lot of economists actually conceptualize when they're talking about Airbnb gentrification specifically is the rent gap theory. Now, for you, Sleeho, I'm I'm sorry for the, the listeners at home that won't have this visual aid, but you'll see in the notes, I have a fancy little graph. Oh, my God. I haven't looked at a graph in a long time. <laughs> there is a graph and I'm a bit triggered. It's reminding me of worse days when I had to do maths and things. <laughs> Explain this graph to me. I'm an art student. Okay. I'm an art student too. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you did like economics. There's graphs and numbers in that. Right. So, what the rent gap model describes is this idea that over time, and we see this especially in Australia, especially in fucking Sydney, uh, housing prices and the the metropolitan value of an area continues to rise over time. I actually want to say something. Uh-huh. Sorry to interrupt you, but this is actually extremely relevant. Oh, there you go. Literally today at work, my boss was talking to me. There was a new article we were reading where in Melbourne, the house price goes up by average $19 an hour, which is a <laughs> dollar less than the minimum wage. Wow. So it's exponentially rising by like $19 an hour. 
Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. And then, like, and not terrifying. So, yeah, it's like, I mean, maybe that's a bit misleading the way I phrased it, but it's more like they have potential to sell $19 more than an hour ago every hour because, like, that's how fucked the market is. Yeah, it was very disheartening. Yeah. But that was, like, amazingly relevant to what you just well, said. So I'm I had to say. I'm glad you it. added that. But, <laughs> you know, as you were saying, yeah. So, as, as you know, housing markets rise pretty quickly. But compared at least relatively to the very sharp increases in the general overall housing market, you will find that rental markets increase at a slower rate. I don't think they quite plateau. In some areas they do, they plateau or they even devaluize, they decrease in value. But at least in your places central to here, they increase at a lower rate. Rent is not going up $19 an hour. No. So at every moment you have the potential price of a property, you know, the, the price that it could be if it was just made, if it was just developed, if it's brand new, but then you have the actual price, which according, you know, to at least these academics, they stagnate. So essentially what this graph shows that you have the luxury of viewing right now and what I'm desperately trying to Y'all describe. Y'all are not missing out <laughs> on anything. <laughs> is that at any point, you know, a rental has the price that it is, which somewhat plateaus, but then has what it could be if it was perfect. And typically, for the landlord. Yeah, what, for the landlord, not for us, of course. But, you know, the potential price of the property. That it could be. That, that it could That be. you could be charged. So there's a gap. And over time, that gap continues to increase. And yes. while the gap is relatively small, it's not worth redeveloping the property in order to take advantage of what it could be worth. Because, you know, as property ages, as the house gets worse, it becomes, you know, less valuable on the rental market. So... It's only until when the gap gets big enough that it becomes worth it to kick out the tenants or to not get new tenants when they come in to redevelop the house. Yeah, like eventually it'll be initially it's not profitable to refurb a house you just bought, but maybe when you've had it for so many years and its potential value is fucking massive, but you're still renting it out to your tenants for a lower price, then you refurb it and then you up the rent by like a hundred bucks. Yeah, exactly. So- Which I'm sure some of you have experienced as tenants. It's happened well, to I me. Well, I feel like even, yeah, even discussing your prior housing sort of circumstance, mm. the, the, the area, like all areas typically do in Sydney, has been increasing in value, but your house is slowly falling apart. So it's not worth it to kick you out so they can- Put it up at a higher because they would have to renovate the house because they'd if they have to, to, which just you know has a cost of redevelopment. So yeah. that's typically what we're talking. But about. eventually, it'll be worth it, and then we'll get evicted. Love that for us. The issue that these academics talk about with Airbnb is that they allow you to take advantage of this potential uh, cost of the house without having to redevelop. So suddenly, we're seeing all of these places which could be viable and affordable overnight. And across the world, turning into short-term Airbnb rentals because it allows you to take advantage and to yeah, there's no cross long, the gap. There's no longer a gap between how much you charge your tenants in rent and how much the house is valued because you don't prize your tenants because you don't really have tenants. Yeah. People who stay in your hotel for three days are not tenants. You don't have to maintain their respect. You don't have to have them to stay and you're not losing out on your mortgage if they leave. And it's not about how much the house is worth to live in for a year, it's about what is that house worth tonight? Exactly. What is that house worth for this tiny 24-hour period Which massively of time? lowers your standards because you don't need all these amenities if you're only there for three days. Like, you don't need closet storage. You know, there are like, for example, for me, whenever I look for apartments, I'm always looking for good storage because that's something I really need. But like, if I'm in an Airbnb, I don't need storage. I don't even really need a TV because I can just watch on my laptop 
for the two nights that I'm there. Like there are so many things that I don't need that the Airbnb doesn't require space for that they can just sacrifice. If this was actually a house, nobody would live here because you need these things to live. But you can sacrifice them for a few days if it means a nice view. I just want to go on a little side tangent for a bit, which I think is fascinating and just shows sort of how despicable Airbnb is. So the the essay I'm mostly drawing all this from is centered around New York because there's been a lot of research into Airbnb in New York City and how it's displaced once affordable housing, uh, all these communities. Uh, there's been less research in Sydney and in Australia. So for this, I have to draw on some international stuff. In, I think, around 2013, 2015, there was a lot of interest in how Airbnb has been affecting the black community in America. And there was, a, I think, a really a big essay or article that came out at the time, which was about how black people in America were being sort of declined uh, yes. rentals. I actually have heard stories about that. Yeah, Even yeah. when declining the rental would result in decreased income for the landlord. It's just, it's like a pure fucking racism. Yeah, it's like, it's honest, they would rather sacrifice the income of three yeah. days than have a person of color, specifically a black person, stay at their rental. So, when this came out, it was a pretty big deal. And Airbnb responded, I guess, sort of unsurprisingly by just refusing to acknowledge the issue at hand. And instead, they said, well, actually, it seems that the black community has really, you know, taken towards Airbnb. We have black customers. Yeah. In fact, Airbnb is growing 50% more in black communities than... Other communities. That's so funny. Oh my God, I wonder why. I wonder, I wonder why. why there's more Airbnbs in lower income black communities. So essentially what Airbnb is saying is that we're helping to gentrify these once affordable black communities. And that's a good thing. We're and bringing money thing. into black communities. Actually, you're not because it's white people building houses in black communities. Yeah. But yeah, that's fucked. I did it's not know that. It's even worse than like what they were saying before. Yeah, they somehow just- incriminate themselves even more. Like yeah. they just expose themselves. Oh, you're like, oh, yeah, we're just helping gentrify all these areas and making once affordable housing. We can't be racist. We're gentrifiers. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, I don't think that's how it works, honey. Which just goes back to what we were saying before about the broad definition of gentrification, which is about not only an influx of, you know, white, typically middle class uh, residents, but also about the redevelopment of these areas to appeal to this white middle class sensibility. These yeah. people want to come to these affordable black communities because black is where culture is yes they i mean look there's we don't have to explain like that anyway we've talked about culture appropriation so much but the gist of it is always white people wanting to try on black culture without dealing with black people but it's which is like a paradox in itself because when you gentrify a neighborhood and you drive out all the local people that live there, it's no longer a black community. Like you've just moved into a space that black people occupied. You've displaced them. And then you'll eventually get bored of this neighborhood because it no longer holds the culture and clout that you thought it did, which is just such a like classic narrative. And you hear about it all the time with like literally everything. Like black people will like do something. They'll start a trend. They'll occupy a space. They'll wear a certain type of clothing. They'll use a certain type of language. And the whites inevitably... Not even whites, just other people of color as well will inevitably co-opt that, whatever it is. 
make it uncool and then move on to the next thing that black people have moved on to. And it's just cat and mouse all the time. And we've talked about this so much with culture preparation in terms of clothing and stuff, but it extends to literally everything, including neighborhoods and houses. So let's bring this back a bit. We got a bit off track here, but that's good because now let's put this theory into practice and specifically talk about Airbnbs in Sydney, specifically tiny home Airbnbs. Yes, back to the tiny homes. Specifically, tiny homes from this YouTube channel, which, again, I'm obsessed with. <laughs> yeah, we got <laughs> Despite that. Despite all this. We got that. <laughs> so, I'm just going to pull some photos up like we're house hunting. And I just want to get your opinion on the space, but also how much you expect such a space to cost. Okay, so, so I'm actually really good at this because I have house hunted a lot in my life as being someone that's rented my whole life. I'm fucking good at guessing house prices. So, this is a fun game. Let's do it. So, this one's called, I think there's a name, like the... Bonica, and it's in <laughs> Rush Cutters Bay in Sydney, which is a very central area. I don't even know where Rush Cutters Bay is, and I live in Sydney, so too bougie for me, clearly. <laughs> clearly, but it's very small. It's got the word bay in it, so it's already like outside of my window yeah. of existence. But anyway. So it's only 24 square meters, which is- Very small. Very small, but it looks very, very nice. So okay, I'm ready. Here is a photo. Here's two photos for all you here for you. Listening, I'm perusing through some photos. Oh, it's quite nice. It is small, but big windows, nice modern white marble kitchen, nice lighting. Uh, it looks like an Airbnb, to be honest. Mm. Like it does kind of look like one when you look at those modern city Airbnbs. Well, where would like, you put your stuff is, is the big question. That's what I mean. Like, that's why it's an Airbnb because, there's, first of all, there's no TV or real lounge room. Like, it's the lounge room you'd sit on when you got back after a long day in the city that you're a tourist in. There's pretty limited space, which you would expect from a tiny home, I guess. But th- those fucking ones on the wheels, that shit has storage. That shit is livable. Mm. This is not livable. Like, it's purely aesthetic. It is nice, though. It's pretty. If it was a house and not a tiny home, it would be, like, a nice house. But I'm looking at it and I'm like, I don't know where the fuck you put your things. Cool. So given all that, given its smallness, but its beauty and also very central location, mm-hmm. what would you suspect would be the price for, you know, like a week? Like a week's rent? Yeah, a week's rent. Um, wait, I'm just going to, first of all, guess this is a bougie area, right? I don't know where yeah, Rush yeah, yeah, Bay yeah. is. As far as I know, it's pretty bougie. Okay. I would guess for a week. Look, a nice, I did a lot of studio house hunting before I moved into this apartment and a nice studio in not quite in the city but maybe within 15 kilometers of the city it was like 300 and the closer you got to city the more expensive probably the most expensive nice studio like actually nice studio i saw was 400 a week right so i would guess three to four hundred a week three to four hundred is it and because especially because it's like it's not it's a one bed like it's a studio it's not an apartment I would be like, like 400, I probably wouldn't even pay for that. But like, I bet it's that much. So I looked at sort of comparable apartments in Rushcutters Bay, which were of a similar size. This one, only 24 square meters. But the other ones I was looking at were about, you know, 30 square meters. Were they like kind of as nice aesthetically as well? I feel like that counts. Not quite as nice, but they were fine. Yeah. They were about $330 to around $370. Okay. I feel like my guess was so good. I think you did pretty I good. I fucking nailed that. And let, let's give them benefit of the doubt and say that this place would be 400 Yeah. I reckon that place would be nice. quite nice. It'd be 400 So, on Airbnb, because again, this you, no one actually lives in this space. People it's simply just pass out. through it. Yeah. It's, it's a transient space. On Airbnb, it was $164 a night, which- 
comes to $1,148 a, a week. week. Jesus Christ. So first of all, I have seen $1,000 houses a week because when I was house hunting before I moved out into an apartment, I was looking at houses with my like family and my budget was $800. But I was obviously looking at $1,000 houses because nothing was affordable in the $800 range. That fucking tiny ass 20... Oh my God. The houses that are on rent for $1,000 in like Sydney are gorgeous. Yeah. They are like and massive. They've got at least typically four bedrooms or about four bedrooms. They've usually got a separate like two bathrooms and like an ensuite and like a back. Because a thousand dollars is a lot of fucking money to be paying for one week of rent. Like that is that is ridiculous. That tiny fucking shoe closet of a house should not be a thousand dollars a week rent, which it would be if it wasn't an Airbnb, which is fucked. Exactly. That's fucked. And I think, you know, you have to take in mind that the fees that the landlords would have to pay for Airbnb, but still, that place is not worth $1,200 a week, but they can sell it for that because it's a holiday location. Yeah, you can rent that out for $164 a night because, like, hotels are $250 a night. And this is the meat of, you know, really what I want to get into. This is the problem with Airbnb And the mostly empty promises of tiny living. You know, why actually try to create affordable living in a tiny footprint when you can list your space as an Airbnb and charge three to four times more for it, you know? And it's such bullshit because, like, that's how they advertise it in the show. Like, when you watch the YouTube channel, like, there's a lot of different reasons that they talk about, like, wanting a tiny home or designing one. But, like, time and time again, the most common one is about affordable housing. Mm. That's the guys that they, like, use to, like, talk about this. Like, we built this because we want affordable yeah, housing. overpopulation. We need to create cities that can actually take care of our people. Yeah, and it's, like, despite the eco-fascist myth of overpopulation, it's somewhat of a noble cause. It's, like, okay, like, we're not saying people shouldn't live in... Melbourne, for example, but we're thinking of ways that we can fit as many people in Melbourne as possible. And we'll do that with tiny housing. Look how like noble and smart and caring we are as people that are solving this massive social issue. But they're not. It's fucking lies. Mm. It's straight up. It's straight up lies. Exactly. Like all this sort of righteousness is undercut by the fact that they firstly, then, they then went and they fucking rented it exactly. out for thousand dollars a week. Who, what? How the fuck is this affordable housing? Exactly. So, firstly, people don't live here. Secondly, people can't live here because it's too expensive. It's not even an option though. You can't even live there because it's an Airbnb. So, what the fuck is this? So, I have another one for you. Okay. I have another one. I think you did really well in that one. So, I want to show you a less attractive place. I don't like this one too much, but it's a. Uh, All right. It, this one's in Tasmania. It's in Sandy Bay in Hobart. Don't know that place, but I believe it's quite central. And again... This is bare as fuck. It's uh, 26.5 square meters. This is like kind of sad. This place makes me sad. It's like looks really empty. The walls are like a light wood. The ground is like a gray charcoal. It looks like... You know how like warehouses have like that cement floor? It looks like a very tiny unfinished warehouse. It's sad. I would not pay money to stay there. So what you can't see there is the fact that the bed folds down from the wall and the kitchen is hidden behind these sort of retractable doors with a pantry, which is, I don't even think you can call it a pantry. In the video, they say how it was really important to have a spacious pantry, but it can only fit like a box of wheat bix That's how (laughs) wide it is. It's about five centimeters wide. And it's just a little slither of a pantry. So- Given, you know, your house hunting expertise, what would you say 
is the price range for this one. Look, I will say I have no fucking clue what the rent is like in Hobart. <laughs> I'm throwing wild guesses. Look, let's even sure, say okay. if it's like Sydney. I was going to say let's Hobart I assume is cheaper than Sydney because Sydney's pretty fucked with rent. And mm. if this was in Sydney and it was in the city, which is this in the city for Hobart? Uh, it's in Hobart. It's Sandy Bay, surely. I don't, I don't know. know what that <laughs> Neither of us are from Hobart. But if okay, if this was I guess I'll overguess. I'll overguess. So sure. if this yeah, was in generous. Sydney and it was like in the city, I reckon it would be less than the other one because the other one we just looked at was way nicer. Like this is kind of fucked. And like also there's no furniture. <laughs> like it's bare. It's bare. It's fucking barren. This is like a ba- you barren You look at it fuck. and you're like, this looks pretentious. Yeah. Like the people who designed this were not thinking about living. They were thinking about aesthetics and they were thinking about the concept. It's too conceptual which I can admire from an artistic sense, but it's not like somewhere I would want to live. It's cold and sad. So what's the guess? Okay. I would guess 300. I'll throw in an extra 50 for novelty. 350. 350. And I like, I wouldn't pay. I currently pay slightly less than that in rent and I love my apartment. I would not fucking pay more than I currently pay to stay in that very sad house. So surprisingly for that Tasmanian apartment, it was even more than the Sydney one. <laughs> well, the Sydney one was one sixty four a night. This one is one hundred and seventy eight dollars a night, making me? it twelve hundred and fifty dollars per week. If you were to actually, you know, live in that, space. I honestly feel personally offended by that. Yeah, and what's funny is that the smallness of these spaces add to the value of the place. They can charge more for it it's because novelty. it's so small. You know, because small living is a virtue. It makes you more mindful. It's good for the environment, so pay more for it. And doesn't that just sound like a landlord's dream? Literally. To make places smaller and be able to charge more for them. But honestly, because- aren't tiny houses just like the landlord's, like the biggest scam? Because like tiny houses are just an excuse for a landlord to underdevelop a space and then oversell it. Like, it's yeah, a scam. because they're doing it all in the name of overdevelopment and encouraging sustainability. It's honestly just greenwashing, like, landlords and capitalism. Yeah. So, I think the way I sort of thought about it when I saw all this was that they're making unaffordable, affordable housing. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Very apt. So, when I got to this point, I just started thinking, wait, so is tiny home content... This thing that I hold so dear to my heart. <laughs> I hold it so close. You've been scammed. Is it just propaganda? Yes. Am I just being indoctrinated into the small home dogma? Yes. I would argue yes. So this is my conspiracy theory. Our shows like Never Too Small and other YouTube channels, you know, because there's others that occupy the same space. Another one, I don't like it as much, but it's living big in a tiny house. Yeah, not as catchy of a no, title. No, no, no. <laughs> Sorry. Do they exist simply as advertisements for landlords to valorize their increasingly small spaces so they can lease them out for exorbitant prices on the short-term rental market? Well, I think, yes, because, and the reason why this is interesting is if we go way back to when we talked about the Netflix show, Tiny House Nation, which feels like years ago. <laughs> yeah. When we were talking about that, the interesting contrast is that was like about people who owned and lived in their tiny home, which I think is a very important distinction to make because these smaller shows that we're talking about now... These aren't shows about the people who live in there. They don't live there. Like, this is about an empty home. And it has completely different implications because one of them isn't landlord propaganda because there's no landlord. They live in their own home. Mm. But this one is landlord propaganda because they're essentially just selling you a home that you could rent, like, hypothetically. They're, like, selling you a lifestyle. These people don't actually live there themselves, so it's disingenuous. 
And yeah. also the fact that these places like can be found online to rent. And this whole thing is just like a very positive ad with no critical like feedback. It's, you know, obviously interesting. Yeah. So that's what I'm thinking. Am I meant to watch these videos and then just eventually be more docile in the face of my own downsizing? You know, like... Yeah, well, it's to convince you so that one day when this becomes an option to you, you're like, I'll do it. Yeah. I'll pay a landlord a fuck ton of money to live in a tiny house because it's the right thing to do. I just want to have a small disclaimer. I don't think that these shows are to blame specifically. And the one reason why I say that is because despite this being Airbnbs, I only discovered that because I hunted them down myself. The show isn't saying, oh, here's this place. Go book it on Airbnb. Like you can rent it here. I think for these shows... And maybe I'm just saying this to, to justify it to myself, to justify my love. You know, I think <laughs> they have a very legitimate fascination with small living. I think they like showing off beautiful spaces and I think they do it really well. And I just want to say that these creators are not to blame, but I'm going to blame them anyways. And here's why. Thank God. I was worried I was in the wrong podcast for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait a sec. So... Like I said before, for all the episodes that I discussed just previously, the Airbnbs themselves were never listed on the show. You know, it was just something I hunted down. They were incidentally on the short-term rental market. However, this is not the case for every episode. In fact, Airbnb themselves, and this is for the, the Never Too Small YouTube channel, actually worked in collaboration with the show for a few episodes. Silent sponsorship, man. They always kill you. And this time they weren't apartments. These were different videos I'm talking about, but they were standalone dwellings. You know, one of them was a tiny house on a large farming property in Mudgee, another one in Tasmania. And, you know, let's be honest, like this collaboration, this sponsorship makes complete sense. As we just described for the last half, a lot of the people in the, in the tiny home market have their shit on as short-term rentals. So the fact that Airbnb would want to collaborate and, and these episodes, these select few episodes start with, you know, in collaboration with Airbnb, it makes sense that, that this would be a pairing because they want people, you know, to book shit on the platform, to book stays. However, what surprised me, though, is that each video ended not with a final plug for the house, you know, encouraging viewers to book a stay, but the sponsored videos actually ended like this. Hosting on Airbnb gave Rick and I the opportunity to value add to our farm, to also create an income stream that was more sustainable than cattle grazing on that particular piece of land. The farm's into its third generation. We feel that we're setting our farm up as a more profitable business to ensure the continuity of family ownership. What we've loved most about hosting on Airbnb is being involved in the vibrant Mudgee tourism community and having guests say that they've experienced something unique and positive that has created memories for them that they're going to take home with them. Two things to say. I have two things to say. The first one is, is someone holding a gun to her head while she reads off a script? <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe. How maybe. do you know? I don't know. And this Airbnb is like right there with a shotgun. No, but my second note is just like, these are literally just ads. Like this is a blatant, op- not a sponsorship. It is an ad. It is an uncritical ad for Airbnb. Well, they're ads, but for who is the question? You know, both. And there's another video. It has the same sort of outro as well. That one was the most involved. But the descriptions of both videos follow a very similar structure. Instead of plugging the house, you know, to book a stay, which is what I assume she's plugging the Airbnb. Priority, the the description of both videos, you know, had the same structure. They say 
if you have a unique space to share, head to Airbnb, blah, 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 dot net slash never too small to learn more about hosting on Airbnb. Each video as well had hashtag Airbnb partner, which makes sense. It, it wasn't like they were hiding the fact that they're sponsored videos, but suddenly this narrative that I had constructed had been problematized. What if these weren't ads or propaganda for us, like you and me, but they're ads for landlords? Each video ends with the property owner discussing how great it is being a host, and the description of the video seemed to prioritize becoming a host instead of promoting the property. Yeah, so this whole time we've been fucking fooled. We've been fooled. we're, like, criticizing them for, like, saying these really unrealistic and false claims about living in one of these properties because we would never be able to and they're not affordable housing because people like you and I can't afford them. But like none of that matters anyway because these videos aren't even targeted to us. Little these aren't know. for us. They're actually ads for landlords. They're propaganda for landlords. The tiny house movement and all of these things valorizing small spaces isn't about convincing us. It's about convincing people to become hosts on Airbnb so Airbnb can put a hand in literally every piece of property that's available and then they can help convert it into short-term rentals. Airbnb is so evil. But honestly, like this makes sense because I was going to say before when I was going to contest your defense of the content creators, this still stands despite them being ads for landlords. I was thinking even if they weren't, like they're inherently problematic because this show creates an uncritical platform for landlords like i will never trust any kind of media or any like creator that gives an uncritical platform these shows are putting up these airbnbs and fucking letting the landlords talk on there about creating affordable housing knowing that it's an airbnb it just feels very misleading to watch content where an architect or a landlord is discussing the virtues of affordable housing And then finding out that that housing is listed as an Airbnb. And I do blame the creators for platforming that. I just think that considering these episodes are interviewing these architects and landlords, like it's their job to be critical. I don't know. I just, maybe it's because I'm a journalist, but like seeing that information or hearing it in the show and then like kind of finding out that it's not quite accurate and that a lot of it is a bit bullshitty, not cool. Yeah, you're 100% right. So I started looking into that hashtag Airbnb partner, which I found on the YouTube videos. And I looked at all the different social medias like YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram. And I found a few other similar YouTube channels making like the exact same type of video. They all had the same description as well. Like, quote, we are so excited once again to partner with Airbnb to bring you the tour of these wonderful tiny house Airbnbs. If you think you might be interested in becoming an Airbnb host yourself, you can find out more here. And then the affiliate link. And the titles are all like Dream Airbnb, Tiny Home Helps Women Find Freedom for Retirement. Oh, my God. (laughs) Or the other one is How This Stunning Tiny House Airbnb Enabled a Couple to Keep Their Home. You know what this like (laughs) reminds me of? Yeah. This reminds me of um, Sorry to Bother You. Yes, sure. Like just this. I mean, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a movie that Mitch and I watched together and it's essentially about capitalist dystopia. It's actually really good. It's quite funny. You should watch it. I really enjoyed it. But like an interesting part of it is how it just frames like capitalist dystopia as like this really cheerful reality. And that is like totally what Airbnb is doing. It actually doesn't feel real because it's so fucked. Like these situations just show like the failure of like the economy and capitalism to provide, you know, people housing. And they've like taken this and then like turned landlords into like these 
almost like sympathetic victims. Like Airbnb liberated the landlord as if landlords were ever fucking oppressed. And it's just like, yeah, Airbnb helps women gain freedom. And it's like, what? Help them gain freedom by becoming a landlord in this case. They freed themselves from the shackles of the working class by becoming oppressors. Yeah. And it's like, you know, all these titles are very emotive, very expressive, very wholesome in a way. It's like, oh, this old couple found freedom by renting out their beautiful, virtuous, righteous small home on Airbnb. And suddenly the narrative has changed once again. It's not that tiny houses will give you financial freedom, but it's that renting your tiny house out will give you financial freedom. <laughs> Literally, like it all circled back to like, oh, it doesn't actually matter what your property is. As long as you rent it at an exorbitant price, you'll be fine financially. You're financially set because you're stealing the money of someone and exploiting them. Because that's actually the only way that you can like get ahead in a capitalist society is by fucking kneecapping everybody around you. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting because all of Airbnb's advertisements in or in like the recent year especially has been less about booking stays, but more about convincing people to integrate their house into the Airbnb network, to add it to the circuit, to become the landlord of the landlord in a way. It's Yeah, I was going to say, it's really interesting that they're not trying to get people to stay at an Airbnb. They're trying to get people to turn their houses into Airbnbs because that's actually where Airbnb has reach and control and power. Airbnb is like this giant octopus with all these arms that are out, <laughs> like just like pulling all these like houses towards them and like owning them, even mm. though it's actually your landlord and you own it, but Airbnb owns you. Like it's just... Sure. It's honestly, it's really interesting that we're talking about this because I've never really thought about the fact that like Airbnb doesn't give a fuck about like consumers. Well, Airbnb, their money or their market or their business isn't about creating experiences. It's about- Obtaining property. Yeah, exactly. Again, if you search Airbnb partner, you know, that hashtag on Twitter and look through the past month, uh, you see all these American sports stars like Kyle Rudolph. I don't know if you know. That person. I don't, I don't know any know American, any sports, American stars, sports stars, but they've got a shit ton of followers, so I imagine they're famous. But they have many of these, the exact same tweet or just adjusted slightly, and they all share the same video and say something like, quote, After years as an Airbnb host, I am still excited each time I get to welcome people from all backgrounds into my home. <sighs> no matter who they are, I hope they all feel the love we put into our space, just like the family in this video. Hashtag Airbnb partner. All those other ones, which are the exact same, which are like, you may not know this, but I've been an Airbnb host for almost a year now, et cetera, et cetera. Just like the family in this video. It's funny how they all follow the exact same I'm telling same you, template. it's dystopian. Yeah. It's like evil robots. No, but also how funny is it that they're like, you may not know this about me. Like, it's almost like coming out. There's like, <laughs> there's, no, there's a weird allegory there about like, not necessarily like coming out, but they're using that language because it implies that what they're doing is applaudable and like inspiring like you might not know this about me but already implies that like i am going against the grain by telling you this and that's already inspiring like it's actually using the optics of coming out which i feel like is quite subtle but it's there and it's noticeable to me so we're approaching the end now and i just want to recap the journey that we've come on we started out with tiny homes being a sort of living paradox because you'd see that they're both something that is righteous something that's great for the environment something that's great for yourself can be anyway or can be but it's actually something that you 
take on because capitalism has failed you. Yeah, well, essentially, we started off saying that tiny homes, at least tiny homes on wheels, definitely are a wholesome capitalist dystopia situation. At the end of the day, no one should need to be in one of those. But like most of the time, people are forced into it out of circumstances beyond their control and they're not quite happy about it. So, if tiny homes, you know, as we were talking then, was a failure of capitalism, Airbnb and the short-term housing market shows how that failure of capitalism can then exist to be great for capitalism. Because now landlords can have five houses on a property instead of one. Tiny houses just seem like the dream for short-term rentals, for landlords, etc. So, suddenly yeah. this failure has become part of the machinic unstoppable wheel of capitalism. Capitalism breeds innovation. And by innovation, we mean 18 different ways to exploit you. Exactly. So we've moved from tiny homes to the rut of Airbnb gentrification. And, you know, I think it just goes to show that the goal of capitalism is to commodify every possible thing. Yes. The issue is no longer the consumer base or demand or desire because all that can be manufactured. It's the goal of the sharing economy to turn every latent resource into something that can be exploited and used and valued immensely more than you could ever imagine. And you saw that exact thing on that never too small ad for Airbnb, which was about the the farming land, which they converted part of it into an Airbnb because there was just this land not being used, but you could turn that into profit. You could could put a house on there. Yeah, exactly. And I found it really interesting that she literally says like, oh, we've been able to create extra profit from something that we weren't initially getting money from. And like, that's an exciting and fun thing for a landlord to say, but like not, not everything needs to be commodified. Not everything needs to reap a profit at all times, but this is like, this is what chasing profits does to you. Yeah, exactly. And this gentrification is a good thing in the eyes of Airbnb. The more Airbnb can displace a city, yeah, the more power they have. And they're know. proud of it. As we saw yeah. <laughs> with their previous comments, they're like, oh yeah, like, no, we're doing great things for the black community. Can't you we're see? We're gentrifying their areas. Yeah, we're gentrifying the neighborhood. We're making it more expensive. Isn't that a good thing? You know, it's, yeah, exactly. So- The idea is if you have a massive property, why not build a cabin? If you have a farm, turn it into a tourist attraction. If you have a house, just rent out the five rooms as five separate Airbnbs. Well, that's what, yeah, exactly. They do that though. They'll renovate their house. Because like a house where it has five bedrooms and every bedroom has its own bathroom is like not a house. It's not, nobody would have fucking lived there, but you can do that and then rent out every room individually and just say there's a common shed kitchen. Bam. And you can spend like, you can charge 50 bucks Per night or whatever, five bedrooms. That's two fifty for per night for a house. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. And everything can become a virtue. Everything can become a tourist attraction. Everything genuine can be owned and traded. Or you want to sign a lease for a year? How about we do it for a week? Or how about we do it for a night? You know, everything just becomes liquid. Everything. Next becomes- thing you know, it's fucking by the hours. Yeah. It? Well, you do see that yeah. with some hotels. Maybe some seedy hotels. Seedy. Yeah. They're not. I don't think they're really for sleeping though. Those, those ones. <laughs> But yeah, and importantly as well is understanding the propaganda around tiny homes that frames them as something that is actually good for society, even though that's clearly a lie. Like these places are framing tiny homes as sustainable. They're greenwashing capitalism and being a landlord, but not just sustainable. Like talks of overpopulation, as if landlords give a fuck about overpopulation. There are more than enough empty houses that landlords own that could just house everybody that needs a home like we have no we do not have a housing shortage there isn't one that panic is manufactured we have enough housing to house the entire population 
We just have shitty landlords that would never do that because it doesn't provide them the profit that they crave. So it's also just built on lies and all this propaganda around all these tiny homes about like it being better for the environment and sustainable and like morally the better thing to do because you become, you know, a more pious, less material person is bullshit. Because while people, even like, even if for a second we believed these things, I'm sorry, rich people are living in fucking mansions. Like nothing I do in a tiny home will stop that. So it's just, doesn't make sense anyway. You know, despite everything I've said, I still love small house media. I still find it very satisfying and addictive. And I think small dwellings may offer legitimate solutions to some problems that we're having. And I think they may even help some people live a more considered life. You know, maybe yeah, I'm they're just not, naive. I think we're not necessarily against tiny housing. We're just against like the media and we're against the industry of selling these things. There's a really kind of sinister PR department involved. Yeah, that's what we're critical of. As always, think about who it is that is selling you these ideas. Cool. Well, thanks for listening. I think now's a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you, our lovely, lovely listeners. Specifically, we'd like to thank Johnny, Sarah Wallace, Kieran, Pia, Sarah Carcano, Liz, and Katie. So thank you so, so much. If you thought our discussion today was interesting or thought-provoking or something that you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also do one-off donations to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. This is what keeps us independent. We're not selling you shit. <laughs> no Airbnb affiliate links on Here's a Thing Low podcast. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> as long as you keep <laughs> donating and, to the Patreon. And that's a fucking threat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official. And give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film, books, and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or Mitch on Instagram. Um, and you can also email us at podcast at gmail.com. And please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info if you email us. And of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there. Cool. Bye. Bye.